To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. How has this Advent been for you? (laughs) Too short or too long? Are all your preparations made? Are the stockings hung by whatever passes for a chimney with care? Are you ready? You can tell that the wait is almost over. This morning's readings have a whiff of Christmas about them. We're surely now in the home stretch of the journey toward Bethlehem, where our Savior came into the world, because Joseph and Mary turn up this morning in the Gospel readings. Now, traditionally, of course, John the Baptizer opens Advent, and Mary closes it down. In Matthew's Gospel, Joseph gets to come along, too, with a bigger role than he gets to play elsewhere in the Gospels. Now, the four Gospels, of course, all tell one story about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And naturally, they start with his birth. But each of them works this out in their own way. It's a little bit like as if each of us went into a room together and had about 10 minutes to observe it and then had to sit down and write a complete account of everything that we saw. Those accounts would not be Xerox copies of one another because differences in perspective change the details that we notice and then share. Take, for example, I'm a little bit tall. And I'm not so tall that it's deeply inconvenient, but I'm tall enough that occasionally I hit my head on things. So, for example, I was, I was getting off an airplane one time, uh, and the folks behind me were having a conversation with themselves, and I wasn't really paying very close attention to what I was doing, and I whacked my forehead at pretty good speed right up against the little exit bar sign on the plane. And it hurt. (laughs) Uh, And the woman behind me noticed, and I know that she noticed because she stopped what she was doing, and I could hear her in a loud stage whisper say, oh, I think he hit his head. (laughs) So what we observe changes. For you, that might not have been a problem. I should have been paying better attention. So those observations and the differences, it doesn't mean that one gospel is more authoritative than the other three. It just means that they are all working together to sketch a more complete picture. So in Matthew's gospel, we get the angel speaking to Joseph in his dream. He gives Joseph the great honor of naming the child that is promised. The baby's boy's name will be Jesus. The name, of course, derived from the Hebrew version of Joshua. So clearly, this Holy Spirit-gifted infant that Mary is carrying will have a connection with Joshua from Israel's history. He will be, as the scripture says, a redeemer of his people. He will be one who saves. The Joshua of ancient times, of course, was a mighty warrior, given the task of leading the children of Israel into the promised land, completing the work that Moses started by bringing the nation out of Egypt. Jesus is a new kind of Joshua, sent to redeem in a different way, leading his followers into righteousness, making it possible for them to live 
as the people who share the promise of God with the whole world. But Joseph and his dreams are not really the focus of the story. Mary, who has no speaking part in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, is, in contrast to the gospel of Luke, where she's quite vocal about what she hopes for, here she's very quiet. The sudden change in her life is presented with plenty of blank space needed to fill in. We don't know how she felt about any of this, what her hopes and her dreams were for her life and for her family and for her child, but she is unquestionably the center of the story. Her response to the thing that God asks about her, the thing that God says only she can do, is remarkable. Mary models faithfulness by trusting what she hears from God. Whatever her fears, when God called, Mary said yes. And Joseph did too. Now there must have been some worries, being young and obviously new to motherhood. And of course, there are the questions about the parentage of the baby because Joseph and Mary are still unmarried. We tend to tiptoe around this issue because it feels a little impolite. But it's not hard to imagine the way that people must have gossiped in a small town like Nazareth. So traveling to Bethlehem together with the cloud of this uncertainty and surprise hanging over them cannot have been easy for the couple. But they both choose faithfulness to God, but also, almost as importantly, to each other. They're beginning their married life under circumstances beyond their control, but they are willing when they are called to give themselves to serve this larger divine purpose. They cannot have known what this particular yes to God would ask of them. It means that Mary will bear this son, and she and Joseph will raise him, and then they will be witnesses as he leaves their home and moves out into the world. Mary herself, of course, quite famously, will go all the way with him to the cross and see him pierced and broken, unable to protect him from the consequences of sin. I think that all parents probably have some understanding of the fear of letting a child go out into the world, of being unable to protect them from the dangers they may find. What Joseph and Mary could not have known would be the depths of their own experience of that feeling. But they are faithful and true when God calls. Neither of them can know what they're committing themselves to, but they're willing to make themselves available. And in Mary's case, as we know, that's a commitment that invests all of her body and soul. Now, in beginning with this story, the gospel has the appearance of a very quiet personal family drama, the kind of thing that the whole world actually does not need to take notice of. But we must remember that when scripture names ordinary people like Mary and Joseph alongside kings and emperors, it's not an accident. In fact, we know that compared with the literature of the day, the fact that the Gospels record the lives and names of so many regular people, some of them even women, is an extraordinary thing. It just was not done at the time. 
And Mary appears over and over again in the gospel because she's a disciple all the way from the beginning to the end of Jesus' story. From the Annunciation on to Pentecost. She is both the God-bearer, the one who brings Jesus physically into the world, but also becomes a gospel-bearer, faithfully proclaiming the work that God had done through her son, who was also her Lord. Now, we tend to think of Mary's elevated status as something that makes Protestants quite nervous. But no less of a Reformation thinker than our old friend Martin Luther described her as a prime example of discipleship for Christians. Luther said this, No one should be afraid if they had tough times growing up or is miserable and despised. It is not a bad omen. Look at Mary's example and look what God made out of her. Her renown and her honor will remain among many until the end of the world For no one can preach Christ without speaking of his mother. No one can preach Christ without speaking of his mother. Now, once upon a time, Mary's presence and influence was obvious in the life and thought of the world in a way that might surprise you. It was so expansive, in fact, that she turned up even in fairy tales. Take Cinderella, for example. An abusive stepmother was, of course, always the antagonist in the story, the cause of Cinderella's misery. But in the earliest versions of Cinderella, Cinderella knew that when she needed help, the person to call upon was actually Mary. And so in no time at all, her hunger was dealt with and a prince was proposing to make her his wife. Over time and over many hundreds of years of tellings, Mary was replaced by a fairy godmother. And the story became a little bit different. It became friendlier for a larger audience. But we can't be guilty of the same thing by airbrushing Mary out of the story of Jesus' birth and trying to put our focus elsewhere. She is the first disciple. She is the first Christian. Believing the promise of God to redeem the world through Jesus Christ, pledging herself to serve him before he was even born. Because of this, we should think of Mary as an example that we can imitate because she was persistently faithful and gave everything that she had for the sake of her son. She listened to him teach. She saw him heal and perform miracles. She knew who Christ was and what God intended to do through him before anyone else. She was the first to receive that revelation of his true identity. Even Joseph hears it second. Because Matthew brings Joseph forward in the story for us, and Luke's gospel spends more time highlighting Mary, it might be easy to think that the two are separate from each other. That one records one half of the story of this pregnancy, and one records the other. It might be, instead, easier to believe that Joseph is at the foreground of the action in Matthew, Because he's the most important character. He's the one who has to make his decision. Who has the dream and names the child. But Mary is the one doing all of the work. (laughs) Husbands and wives, parents, I suspect you've had this conversation before. 
In fact, Mary is the subject of only one active verb in Matthew's whole little birth narrative. The word is bore. She bore a son. Matthew says it six times. He is, she is his mother. Joseph exercises his faith by caring for Mary and for Jesus and by obeying when he's called. But she does the thing that often goes unnoticed, the mundane, quiet, normal work of being a mother. And she does so in the most dangerous circumstances we can think of. Given her social status as an unmarried young woman, she is extremely vulnerable. Joseph, as the gospel said, is a good man, but he has all the power to decide her fate. And while she waits, she is in jeopardy. And later, when Herod is scheming to have her child murdered, she nursed him and changed him and fed him and loved him. She persisted in her faith, and she showed her faith by doing the ordinary things that mothers do, the -the behind-the-scenes work that goes unnoticed. And it is by her service that she valorizes the service of countless others, particularly women, throughout history, who do the things that happen behind the scenes that make life possible, not just for the church, but for our families and for our friends and neighbors. Advent is about practicing that kind of steady, patient, faithful obedience, the kind of thing that an expectant mother knows perhaps better than anything else. Advent cannot be rushed any more than a pregnancy can be accelerated. The entire life of Christian discipleship is found in the way that Mary leans into what God asks her to do. And we should follow her example. Every one of us is called to place our lives in Christ and to let Christ live in us. We are all expected to carry Jesus at the core of who we are, at the very center of our day-to-day being, like Mary carrying Christ in her body. We are all called to labor with him and for him. But unlike, crucially, unlike a mother giving life to a child in birth, Christ is the one who gives us new life by his presence in us. And that's the presence that we desperately need. As the colic for this morning has it, we are sorely hindered by our sins from running the race that is set before us. We cannot do it on our own, but God has willed to deliver us, to take up our case and mount a vigorous defense so that our sins do not condemn us to a future without hope. Like Mary, we are able to make our lives into worthy acts of service for the Messiah who has come into the world. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, said, It is of no use to say that we are born 2,000 years too late to make room for Christ. Nor will those who live at the end of the world have been too late. Christ is always with us. 
Christ is always asking for room in our hearts. There are many, many quiet and simple ways that you and I can imitate Mary serving others and thereby serving our Lord. You don't have to believe that God has called you to do something miraculous. You only have to answer when God calls you to do something very normal and mundane, whatever it might be. If you respond with faith, God is glorified. We follow Mary and Joseph's good example when we make room for Christ by loving and serving our neighbors, by making ourselves available for whatever it is that God is going to do in and through our lives to minister to those around us. We very rarely get to anticipate the results of that kind of service. We don't know what might happen, but we can trust the one who calls us. And we can trust God because of the promises made and kept by Jesus, the Messiah. The God who makes and keeps promises is the one who called Mary to bear a son and who calls you and I to make room for him in our hearts and thereby to represent him to the world by how we love and serve others. This season of Advent, as we have hustled and bustled and wrapped and partied, our hearts are being prepared to welcome Christ again. Mary and Joseph learned firsthand that saying yes to God can lead you to all kinds of unexpected and interesting directions. It will change your life. But it can be a very, very good thing. Because the truth is, the Lord will not leave any of us helpless. Mary had no idea what it would mean to bear this child. But she was faithful. And she said yes. And God in his infinite goodness was willing to justify her act of service. And live forever in her as he lives in us. There is help coming into the world for those of us in need, for who are, those of us who are sorely hindered by our sins from running the race that is set before us, hope is being born again. One is coming who will justify all of our patient waiting and all of our anticipation. And the whole world will rejoice to behold it together. Amen.